Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, guys. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8 today is where we are. Uh, If you would, please grab your Bibles and open them up there. And as you do that, let me review from last week. Last Sunday was really a short sermon from Jesus. And the subject matter was discipleship. And Jesus' words were meaty, weren't they? They were heavy. The cost of discipleship. It's a weighty subject because there is a tangible reality to our faith. The spiritual life is real. It's not this ethereal, celestial, intangible something that we can't grab a hold of. It's not a fairy tale, right? This stuff is real. And what we say we believe is is living and active in the the kingdom of God here in the Verde Valley. It's it's happening around us whether we realize it or not. Now, before Jesus gave this sermon, he told the 12 disciples from a few weeks ago that he, as the Messiah, that he, as the anointed one from God, he would have to suffer, he would have to die And be resurrected. So, what Jesus does is he uses this concept of a suffering Messiah as a model for discipleship. And Jesus laid down three very specific conditions to be his disciple. Really, the first two are they are decisive acts. We have to willfully, consciously choose to do these things. And the first is to deny yourself. And we said that denying yourself, it's an ongoing daily decision to abandon your natural, sinful desire to make yourself the center of your universe. The second decisive act is to take up your cross. And we said that bearing your cross comes from obeying the commands of Scripture regardless of the cost. Jesus keeps saying throughout the Gospels, if you do this, you will be my disciple. If, 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 it's a condition. And the other side of that coin is that if we don't, then we're, we're what? We're not disciples, right? Yeah. Now, please don't hear perfectionism. Please don't hear legalism to all this. We know that the Lord Jesus He doesn't demand perfection. All we have to do is look at the 12. We looked at Peter's denial of of Christ last week. Hopefully that made us feel better about ourselves. We said discipleship is not perfection, but it is an increasing obedience to God's word. So as you look over your shoulder, as you look in the rearview mirror of your life, just over the past year, Are the fruits of of the Spirit, are they being demonstrated in your life? 
in an increasing manner? Does the sin that you used to love, does the sin that you used to spend so much time with and money on, does that now, when you look back at that, does that now disturb you greatly? Does it disgust you like it disgusts the Lord Jesus? And then those things that the Lord says that are holy and those things that are good, the things that you didn't want to be around or pursue at all, are those things, are you walking slowly towards those things? Are those things more attractive? Is there a growing love for God? Is there a growing love for people in your life? Lastly, Jesus said that if we are to be his disciples, we're to follow him. And we said that following Jesus is a relationship based on non-negotiable obedience. Now that sermon from Jesus 2,000 years ago That's just as relevant to us today. We ended last week with some practical application. And we learned, just like the 12, that the narrow road that Jesus refers to in the other parts of Scripture, um, it does lead to glory, but it first leads through a valley of suffering first. So how do you think the 12 were feeling after last week? Were they sad? Were they confused? I think they were grieved. I think grief is a good word. They were grieved. They know that the Messiah is going to have to die, and so are they. So they're grieved. Well, that sets us up well for today because Jesus sees their grief. He does something about it. And today's sermon is on the transfiguration of Jesus The transfiguration, it describes the transformed appearance of Jesus on a mountain in front of three disciples here. It's almost like God the Father peels back Jesus' humanity and he just allows us to see his deity come forth. Because there is deity wrapped up in those skin and bones. So God the Father, he, he... He lets the three apostles see just a glimpse of how glorious this Jesus, this Messiah is. Now, why is the transfiguration, why is that important for us today? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word, if you're able. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 and following. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John... And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured in front of them. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he, did not, he didn't know what to say, since they were terrified. And then a cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And these are the very words of God. Please pray with me. Father, the psalmist writes, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, the strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. The king of glory will come in. Who is this, this king of glory? Ah, he's the Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. So, Father, we come today to worship King Jesus. And I pray that you would reveal his glory to us, that, that no matter how many times that we've heard this story, if, if we've been in church for a while, that you would teach us something new. And Father, that we would not keep this to ourselves as we walk out of here today. How wonderful and how glorious the Lord Jesus is. Father, for those of us who have never heard this story, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for showing us that the Lord Jesus is not just a man, but he is indeed God. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Take a deeper look here at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And he was transfigured in front of them. So the transfiguration here, apart from Jesus' death, his resurrection, it really is the most important miracle. And yet rarely do, do we find it listed along with Jesus' other miracles. This event is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, the similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're going to be looking at those texts as well to give us a 3D picture of what happened. Mark says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. So Matthew's gospel confirms the six days, but Luke does not. Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 28, says eight days. So, either somebody can't do math or we have a contradiction in Scripture. Which one is it? Well, Luke, who is writing to the Greeks, he writes this gospel in a very orderly manner. Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 1. An orderly sequence, very important to the Greeks. So, the variation of the two days is this. Luke includes the same day that Jesus made the promise, and then he also includes the actual day of the transfiguration. Matthew and Mark, what they do is they refer to the six days between the two events. So there's no contradiction in the word of God. And yes, the apostles can add. So that's, that's a good thing too. Now, why is it important though? Why is it important that all the synoptic gospels um, include this time frame? Because that is a bit unusual. What happened six or eight days, depending on how you want to look at it, prior to this event? Peter proclaimed, he said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. So with that background, let's look at verse two again. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. He led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. So we know from last week that Jesus and the 12, they're still in Gentile territory. This is Caesarea Philippi, way north of Israel. And there happens to be a beautiful mountain there. It's called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon towers over Israel. 
Mount Hermon is the mountain in Palestine. Its peaks rise to 9,000 feet above sea level, 11,000 feet in the Jordan Valley, just this gorgeous, beautiful place. On a clear day, you can see the snow all the way from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's probably 100 miles away, 120 miles away. So scripture says, Mark says, Jesus led them up. So just imagine um, the steep terrain that Jesus is, is leading the apostles up as they basically, they're going on this hike. They're going on a full-day hike. Uh, you know, climbing Mount Hermon, climbing any mountain, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Peter, James, and John, they are not mountain men. They used to be fishermen. So I'm not sure they're that excited about this. Luke 9.28 says that Jesus is taking the disciples up to the mountain to do one thing, and that is to pray. Now, to climb this mountain, it probably took all day, probably pretty close to it, but just picture the beauty. They're probably climbing this mountain September or October, it's the fall. The scene is just absolutely breathtaking, just unforgettable. So the question becomes, now why? Why is Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the disciples, right, on this really long hike within this dramatic setting? Well, six days earlier, Jesus dropped the bomb that he's going to have to suffer, he's going to have to die, he's going to have to be resurrected. And if that wasn't heavy enough, Jesus presses in from last week, giving the mandates to be his disciples. So in other words, guys, I'm going to have to suffer and die, and so are you. So as you can imagine, the apostles are just grieved. Luke chapter 9, verse 32 says this, Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with them. So Jesus gets Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain, and they start to pray. Peter and James and John, they fall asleep. Now, it's really easy for us to start railing in on the disciples right now. Because, oh, you know, they fell asleep. They're good at that. But let's pause here for one second. What's their mental state? They're grieved. Does grief make you tired? Sadness make you tired? Secondly, what have they been doing all day? They've been hiking. They're physically tired. They are mentally spent Now, if you're tired, and if you are mentally spent, and you are uh, grieved and a little depressed, you feel like praying. You feel like doing a Bible study at that moment. No. No. So Peter, James, and John, they fall asleep, and Jesus is praying by himself. Back to verse 2, he was transfigured in front of them. So Jesus' outer appearance was transformed. He was changed. Metamorpho. We get our, our English word metamorphosis from it. We learned about metamorphosis in school. How we studied how a caterpillar turns into a beautiful butterfly. Right? I don't know about you, but comparing the transfiguration of Jesus Christ to a butterfly, I think that falls a little bit flat. But the Apostle Paul, he uses this word metamorpho twice in the epistles. 
Let me show this to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the word of God says, We all, with unveiled faces, we are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So these two passages, they refer to the believer's transformation because a disciple of Jesus, slowly over time, what we do is we experience God's glory through the transformation, through our thoughts, through our actions, and through our our character and through our behavior. But Jesus, he doesn't need an inner transformation, does he? The Word of God says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So Jesus had to veil his deity, his glory inside this body. Jesus is God with flesh and bones. And it's at this moment that Jesus, he supernaturally, he undergoes this visible physical change. Now, the language in this verse indicates that the change was brought on by God the Father. So the appearance of Jesus was momentarily changed from an ordinary human being to Almighty God and all of his deity. So let me give you key point number one. This is a little bit wordy, so stay with me here. The transfiguration was not a change in Jesus' spiritual nature, but an outward transformation of his physical appearance to reflect and to demonstrate his spiritual nature. The transfiguration, not a change in his spiritual nature, because his spiritual nature doesn't change. He's perfect. But it's an outward transformation of his physical appearance. And what that did is it it reflects who he was on the inside or who he is on the inside. It reflected his spiritual nature. Matthew and Luke give us more details here. Matthew 17, verse 2. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Luke 9, 29 The appearance of of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Luke's gospel also goes on and and hints that this transfiguration took place at night or early in the morning, because in verse 37, it says they came down the mountain the next day. Back to Mark now, verse 3. His clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. So literally, the maximum lightness. That's what the gospel writers are communicating here. Your translation may say extremely white. They were glistening. They were shining. They were exceedingly white. So here we not only have this glorious picture of the holiness of Jesus, but we also have Old Testament, beautiful Old Testament imagery. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. And this title comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel goes on to say this in chapter 7, verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
the Ancient of Days, that's Jesus. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. So in other words, there is a heavenly brightness to what Peter, James, and John saw that day. I mean, just picture it for yourself. Jesus' clothes, white as light, very little hue, very little colors. There's no, not a variety of colors here, just white. So just picture someone rolling themselves in glitter, right? And you've got the, the power of the Arizona sun just beaming and blazing down on them, only a gazillion times stronger, supernaturally stronger. The transfiguration was a glance, really. It was a glance back at Jesus' pre-human glory. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed himself to mankind in light. Remember Moses? Moses got a a momentary glimpse of of God's back, and yet that experience, it was so intense that Moses' face, it shined with such brilliance and radiance that people were afraid to get close to him. Now, there is a big difference here between Moses' reflection of God's glory and what the disciples witnessed, because the disciples, they saw God's actual glory, the glory of God. This was not a reflected glory like Moses. The source of that light came from within Jesus himself, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word of God says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact expression of his nature. So in other words, Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God. Verse 4 Elijah appears to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So if all that wasn't miraculous enough, all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up on the scene. So what is going on here? I mean, how did they get here? Who invited them to this hike? How did the disciples even recognize that this was Moses and Elijah? The disciples, they have no idea what Moses and Elijah look like. They've been dead for quite some time. There's a couple thoughts on this. Uh, it's been said that when we get to heaven, there's going to be this supernatural intuition to where we just, we just know, oh, that's, that's the Apostle Peter, and oh, that's King David, that we're just going to know. I don't think there's a verse on that. So There's a good chance that, that Peter... When, the, when Peter woke up, I mean, he's watching this whole scene unfold. So he's watching the conversation with Jesus and Elijah and Moses. So he kind of figures it out. He figures that this is Moses and Elijah. That's, that's a possibility. Um, but the last possibility, I think, is, is the best. And that is Jesus introduces Elijah and Moses to Peter, James, and John. So can you just imagine this, right? Peter, James, and John, they're sleeping on the ground. They wake up to this shining deity of Jesus, just in all of his glory. Obviously, they're going to wake up. And they are just 
looking at what's going on, Jesus no, notices that they wake up and Jesus introduces them. Oh, hey guys, uh, Moses, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, this is Moses. Elijah, this is my friend Elijah. Elijah, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Elijah. I can see Jesus doing that because Jesus is a relational God. He's a relational being, right? He's a person. My next question is, out of all the Old Testament people, out of all of them that you've read through, why Elijah, why Moses? I mean, why not, why not King David? Why not Abraham? Why, why not uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah? Well, there are several reasons. Both Elijah and Moses, they spoke with God on mountaintops. They both had seen God's glory individually. While Moses gave the law, Elijah is the guardian of the law. There was no lawgiver like Moses. There was no prophet comparable to Elijah. Moses died on Mount Nebo in Moab. God himself buried Moses. Elijah, he never died. He was miraculously taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So all that to say this is that nothing could have brought Peter, James, and John more assurance of their grief than meeting Elijah and Moses. I think it eliminated their grief. So the question becomes, all right, so they're meeting Elijah and Moses, if you can picture that. What are they talking about? Luke chapter 9, verse 31 tells us, they appeared in glory and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So departure, exodus there, they were, they were talking about Jesus' exodus. They were talking about his sacrificial death. Really, they're talking about the cross. And the sense in this verse indicates that this was not a short conversation. This was a long conversation. So think about this. You've got Moses, you've got Elijah. These guys are the chief representatives of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. They're now carrying, carrying on a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, look, guys, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So Jesus is fulfilling both the law and the prophets in real time right now in this narrative. Wow, it's crazy. As Moses and Elijah are having this conversation about Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, what do you think Peter, James, and John are doing? What are they doing? Yeah, I like that. I like that, Mike. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, they're meeting Moses. Moses, he's been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah, he's been dead for 900 years. If there was ever a time for silence, it's right now. Here comes Peter, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Hey, it's, it's really good for us to be here. Let, let's set up three shelters and, you know, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And verse 6, 
He said this because he didn't know what to say, because he was terrified. He was terrified. So Mark makes one thing clear here. Peter is talking out of fear. Peter is still reacting to life from a human perspective. Now, you would think after Jesus rebuked Peter and called him Satan a few days ago, (laughs) that he would kind of crank down that filter, you know, that filter that goes from here to here. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Peter calls Jesus rabbi. That's a little weird because rabbi is just teacher. He knows that he's the Messiah. Matthew says that Peter called Jesus Lord. Luke says that Peter addressed him as master. So once again, do we have a contradiction in Scripture? What happens when, you, uh, when you've got adrenaline pumping through your veins and you try to speak? You start to stutter a little bit? That's what Peter does here. Rabbi, Lord. Jesus, Master, he, he just uh, let's build three tents that we're going to do this. So Peter calls Jesus all three names, and each gospel writer records a different name. So once again, there's no contradiction in Scripture. Now, from a Jewish theological perspective here, Peter's response was proper, but his timing was just awful. So stay with me here, because this gets a little deep. Why would Peter want to build three shelters or tents or tabernacles? They're they're all the same thing, just different translation in your Bible. Why would he want to do that? That seems a little bit weird to me. What does Peter know that we don't? So let's review. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Check. Peter witnessed Jesus' transfigured glory with his own two eyes. Check. Peter meets Moses, meets Elijah. Check. Hmm. What what are Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about again? Jesus' death. The final plans of the cross. So Peter doesn't know the messianic plan of the cross. But Peter, being a good Jew, he knows the Old Testament. So Peter saw Jesus... Picture this now. Peter wakes up. He sees sees Jesus in all of his glory. He meets Moses and Elijah, and he knows that the kingdom of God is now on earth. As a good Jew, he knows that all the nations of the earth will physically gather together to worship the Messiah at the Feast of Tabernacles. And Peter assumes that the kingdom is about to be set up. And because of that, he offers to build three tabernacles in honor of what's getting ready to happen. The Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 36. Basically, this is a week-long celebration. It honors God for his faithfulness and his supernatural provision during the, the Exodus, during the 40 years of wandering. So the Jews, what they did is they lived in tents, in these tabernacles for seven days, and then they threw a party on day eight. So Peter had this great, he had the right idea, but once again, his timing is off because his words don't make any sense. First of all, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, they don't need tabernacles. 
It's the people who do. Secondly, the Feast of the Tabernacles, it comes after Passover, not before. So at this point, the Passover is still about six months away. Passover is celebrated in the spring. The transfiguration happens in the fall. So there are actually three festivals that take place in the fall. you got the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of the Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And when you, uh, collectively now, all three of those, those fall festivals, are called the Tabernacles. So there's a very good chance that as this was going on, the Feast of the Tabernacles was in Jerusalem happening at this exact time. So all that to say, and I know that was a little deep, all that to say that the Passover must be fulfilled before the Feast of the Tabernacles is fulfilled. That's why Peter's timing is awful. Because the only way the Passover is going to be fulfilled is by the crucifixion of Jesus. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Moving on to verse 7. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So you're going to notice here as you read through the Old Testament that clouds, they often represent the presence of Almighty God. This is the Shekinah cloud. This is the, the presence of God's dwelling. God's presence went before Israel in the wilderness in the Exodus. Look at this. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, we've talked before about how Jesus is the second Moses, the new Moses. So Peter, once again, Peter was so close, so close. Notice the cloud here. It symbolizes two things. Number one, God's presence, and number two, God's glory. God's Shekinah glory, it, it covers, it overshadows the whole scene here on Mount Hermon. It's been 600 years since anyone in Israel has ever seen God's Shekinah glory. So it really is hard to believe that Peter, James, and John are in the cloud. Moses, he couldn't even look at the cloud. Peter, James, and John, they're in it. So Luke tells us that they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Matthew says that they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, he's, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So it's like God the Father interrupts Peter's interruption. God the Father, he commands that they listen to God the Son. In Jewish culture, listening was the same as obeying. So... Poor Peter. This poor guy, he's been rebuked twice by two of the three persons of the Trinity. Incredible. God the Father commands Peter and the others to be silent and to listen to what Jesus has to say. Well, listen to Jesus about what? About his death. About his death. In other words, Peter, come on, brother. You got to get on board with the program here. Remember what Jesus told the fire-breathing, Christian-eating Pharisee named Saul? 
Saul was traveling to Damascus. Jesus said, Saul, it's really hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, Saul, stop fighting God's will here. It's the same thing. God the Father is telling Peter, quit resisting this plan for salvation. This is my plan. Verse 8, suddenly they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So the miraculous transfiguration of Jesus, it ends as abruptly as the whole thing began. It's an amazing story. It, it, it really is. So the question, right, is, well, how does, this, how does this apply to us today? Let me give you a, a few more key points here. Key point number two for today, you cannot experience God without clouds. Contrary to popular belief, God does not always come to you on a beautiful, warm, Arizona, sunny day. The clouds not only teach us things about God, but they also teach us things about ourselves. Many times God is undoing things in our lives, just like he is with the disciples. God loves us so much that he is teaching us how to unlearn things. And that's key point number three. Discipleship is just as much about unlearning as learning. Discipleship is just as much about unlearning as it is learning. Key point number four, clouds remind us to keep life simple. Clouds remind us to keep life simple. Experiencing God is about simplicity. Is your life becoming more simple? Are you still buying and collecting and maintaining all of these things that we just had to have? All these toys in your life? Have you noticed that the toys are a distraction? Have you noticed that the, the simpler your life is, the less dramatic it is? All in favor of a dramatic free life? Say aye. Wow, those hands popped up very quickly. I got distracted by your hands. Hang on one second. <laughs> Key point number five, descending from a mountaintop experience is a test of your spiritual life. Descending from a mountaintop experience is a test of your spiritual life. So if we only have the strength to walk up the mountain, something is wrong. Disciples are not made for mountaintops. Mountaintops are, are given by God's grace for encouragement. They are given for hope. Mountaintop experiences are very short stays. This is why we bring tents on hikes. God never intended us to lay a foundation and, and build a house there. And the reason for that is because disciples, we are made for the ordinary things of life not for the spectacular. The world craves, the world demands things that are spectacular, but not the disciples of Jesus. Disciples are produced for the drudgery 
of walking and working and living inside this sin-stained world. If we as a disciple of Jesus, if we crave, if we demand a mountaintop experience with God, then that reveals something about us. It, It reveals our spiritual selfishness. Because what we're doing is we're telling God that his son and that his word and that his spirit and that his people, his church, it's not enough. God, I, I need something more than what you've already given to me. You're, you're telling God that your spiritual life is based on emotion rather than a relationship. Key point number six, mountaintop experiences are not meant to teach us something, but primarily to make us something. Mountaintop experiences are not meant to teach us something, but primarily to make us something, to produce something. God is producing something in you if you're a disciple. It's on the mountaintop where where you can believe anything that God's word says. That's easy. That's easy. But the true test of your faith is when you walk down that mountain. Walking down the mountain takes another set of skills than walking up. Physically and practically, you need different tools. You're using different muscles. Your balance is different as you walk down the mountain. And spiritually speaking, walking down the mountain, it exposes what you do in your spare time. It reveals your priorities. It proves whether or not you believe what you say you believe. It discloses your prayer life. It exposes your fear. It uncovers who your faith truly is in. Walking down the mountain, is your faith in God or is it in your stuff? Is it in you? Is it in your own strength and in your own wisdom and your own money? And then verse 8 is just so important for us today. Looking around, there is no longer anyone with them except Jesus. So the question becomes, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? It's a question that that all believers need to answer when they get to that mountaintop. But it's also a question that all disciples must answer when, when they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Is Jesus enough? Kind of reminds us of what, when Jesus asked the apostles a few weeks ago, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because the answer to that question, it reveals what we do and how we respond as we walk down our own individual mountains. All these trials. Is Jesus enough? I mean, we're all going to see Jesus in his glory. We're all going to see Jesus with this light. We're going to see him face to face very, very soon. And the question is, do you personally know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know that you know him? Just know about him. Jesus is either going to be a savior or he's going to be a judge. He's going to be a savior if you have called on the name of Jesus. 
and repented from your sins. He's going to be a judge if you haven't. So, dear friends, I, I want to encourage you to do some business with Jesus, this Jesus, this week. Is Jesus enough? Or is it Jesus and, Jesus plus? Next week, we're going to see what happens as the disciples walk down this mountain, and they're going to process what they've seen. We're going to see how they handle all of this and what they just experienced. If you have any questions about Jesus, if you have any questions about the gospel or this message, we have a, a prayer room through the foyer to the right. We'll be in there after the service. Father in heaven, thank you for showing us the beauty and the glory of your son Jesus. The psalmist writes, who is the king of glory? Ah, it's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, you gates, and rise up ancient doors. And then the king of glory is going to come in. Who is he? Who is this king of glory? Who is the, the Lord of armies? Ah, he is the king of glory. Lord Jesus, you are the king of glory. Thank you for allowing us to come and, and worship you today. Thank you for teaching us the importance of the transfiguration and showing us your glory, what it looks to just see a fraction of your deity. And now, Lord God, once again, as we leave this place and we go back into the world, I pray that we're able to share this glorious Jesus with others. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.